of God's Word and look with me to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4, as is our habit every second Sunday in January. We share with you, I share with you, uh, what focus we would like to uh, uh, give our time and attention and affection to in this coming year. And from this text of Scripture, I'd like to lay out for us as a congregation um, the focus that we would like to give our energies to in this coming year. If you've read through the book of Ephesians, you know that Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3 spends a, a significant amount of time laying out a number of really important doctrinal truths. All of those doctrinal truths relating to and focus upon this gospel narrative, the truth of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. You read chapter 1, and in chapter 1 you see that the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have all been at work simultaneously to deliver for you and me the greatest gift of all, salvation. In chapter 2, Paul speaks of this salvation and of our great need for this salvation, for we are sinners, Ephesians chapter 2, who are dead in our trespasses and sins. But thanks be to God, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God, one of the greatest conjunctions in all of the New Testament. And then coming into chapter 3, Paul spends uh, time reflecting on what this mystery is, this mystery of the gospel that has primarily been manifested in the revelation of the church. The church is God's express way of declaring his glory to the world. You and I, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, play a part in declaring God's glory, making known God's glory to the world. So Paul, as he comes to chapter 4, fleshes out this truth of the church and what is the focus and implication of our lives lived in relationship with one another in the context of the church. The Bible has over, the New Testament has ni some 96 images, if you will, of the church. The church itself, just the word church, is mentioned some 114, 113 times in the New Testament, and of those mentions, overwhelmingly the majority, and by overwhelmingly the majority, I'm talking about 90 of the 113 are a direct reflection upon a very specific local New Testament church. The church, the gathering of the people of God, is at the very center and core of what the New Testament is. The Bible defines the church as the body of Christ, the dwelling place of the Spirit, a herald of the gospel, the bride of Christ, the family of God, and numerous other images are given to define what you and I are as the people of God. John Stodden, reflecting upon the church, said this, quote, the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. Why does the New Testament focus so heavily upon the church? As Mark Dever noted, quote, wrong ecclesial teaching and practices obscure the gospel while right ecclesial teaching and practices clarify it. In other words, to get the doctrine of the church wrong is to get the doctrine of salvation wrong. Christians, Mark Dever went on to write, living together in local congregations make the gospel visible. The church is the gospel made visible. In the book of Ephesians, to which we turn our attention this morning for a few moments, Paul has already written, even before he gets to chapter 4, he's given to us several statements on the church. For example, notice in chapter 1 with me, if you will, in chapter 1, in verses 22 and 23, Paul mentions that the church is indeed the fullness 
of God. And he put all things under his feet, that is Jesus, and gave him his head over all things to the church. And what is the church? It's his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The church is the fullness of God. Notice chapter 2 and verse 21 and 22. The church is the dwelling and the holy temple of God. Listen as Paul defines it here in verses 21 and 22. In him, the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And then Paul, before he gets to chapter 4 and chapter 3, says that the church is the locus of God's glory. Look at chapter 3, verse 10. Chapter 3, verse 10. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, is the glory of God, might now be made known to the rulers and to authorities in the heavenly places. How is God's glory known? How is it revealed? How is it communicated? It is communicated through the church, the gathering of God's people. And Paul comes to chapter 4, in verse 1 through 16, and he spends this entire first part of chapter 4 in this deep reflection on the body of Christ, upon the people of God. And he reminds us in this text of Scripture that the church is a unified body of believers, each with different gifts. The church is a unified body of believers, each with a different gift, using those gifts to become more like Christ. In other words, Paul says, there is deep unity among great diversity. And it's through that unity and through that, 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 that diversity that Christ is working to make himself known through the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want us to see two truths from this passage of Scripture as we reflect on the church this morning. The first thing that Paul shows us in verses 1 through 6, Paul encourages the unity of the body of Christ. Unity of the body of Christ is at the core of our declaration of exactly who we are. And you're going to note at the very end of these first few verses that our unity is flowing from the unity that exists in the Godhead among the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And this unity is a natural outflow and work of the Spirit of God among the people of God. Look what Paul says as he reflects on this encouragement and unity among the body of Christ. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And what is that manner? Verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Verses 4, 5, and 6, there is one body and one Spirit. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. A similar text that we read earlier from Colossians chapter 1, Paul culminates here in Ephesians, reflecting upon the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul gives us here in just the first few verses the very means of maintaining unity. What is the means of maintaining unity in verses 1 through 3? 
selflessness. Selflessness. Listen as Paul defines it again for us here in verses 1 through 3. Beginning in verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Paul begins chapter 4 by reflecting for us that he is this prisoner. And as a prisoner, he is bound, if you will, in chains. He's going to come back to this bond toward the end. But here at the beginning, Paul is this prisoner of who? Of the Lord's. Paul is a prisoner of the Lord, and as he is thinking and reflecting upon the life of a Christian, Paul is admonishing the church in Ephesus, and by extension, you and me, that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is a manner that is worthy of the call of Christ Jesus. There is a way that believers in the Lord Jesus Christ should indeed live their lives. We should be marked by a certain set of characteristics that set us apart from the rest of the world. How we live our lives, Paul is arguing, intimately matters. Why? Because we have received a calling. We have received a salvation that has nothing to do with who you and I are and everything to do with who God is. God has graciously given to you and me the gift of salvation. And by the way, Paul is going to focus on this idea of Christ giving gifts in just a few moments in verses 7, 8, 9, and 10. We've been given this incredible gift of, of salvation. This is the manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And what does that manner look like in the heart and the lives of those who by faith have trusted in Jesus? We should be people who are marked by a sense of selflessness. Why? Because we are followers of Christ, and there was no one who gave us the example of genuine, true, deep, authentic selflessness than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. What has Jesus done for us? Ephesians chapter 2, the Bible tells us that Christ has laid aside. He has given up. He's given up the blessings of, of heaven. He's given up that intimate, deep connection between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit that would be severed for a moment that moment in which Christ himself took upon sin, became sin for you and me. Jesus is the supreme example of what it means to walk in humility and gentleness and patience. It's interesting if you survey a number of Paul's listing of characteristics. In fact, if we were to go to Galatians and just preview the fruits of the Spirit, uh, the number of the fruits of the Spirit that occur here in this text of Scripture. Paul lists oftentimes these characteristics of what genuine Christ-likeness should indeed be. But can we just take a moment of confession and say, I don't know about you, but I know about Lewis for sure. There are times when these expressions are exceedingly difficult. Why? they run contrary to our nature. They run contrary to who we are. We like to think of ourselves and all of our declarations that we are always right. If I say it, it must be true. Right? For those that, thank you. Thank you, Brother Roland. I appreciate that amen. That was a great spot for an amen. If you were at upper basketball yesterday, there was this great moment in which I was refereeing on the court, and across the court was my son that I did not see that threw up a three-point shot, and it was nothing but net. But as he's preparing to shoot, standing in the lane were a group of his players that I had been saying to watch out for the lane. And so I call three seconds in the lane as David is getting ready to fire the shot off, and of course, 
you know, a half a second later, the ball goes right through the bucket and everybody in that room booed me. And for David, that was the highlight of his game. But from the end of that game at six o'clock until finally at 10 o'clock last night, I kicked him out of my room. It was a constant banter to me. Daddy, you were wrong. You missed that call. And it wasn't just that call I missed, of course, right? It was a series or a host of other meetings. As Tristan Bailey came in my room, my office this morning, I said, buddy, did you enjoy basketball yesterday? He said, yes. I said, did your team win or lose? He said, we lost. I said, oh, man, sorry about that. I said, how many points did you lose by? He said, three. I said, oh, no. He said, and it was your fault. (laughs) He said, every time that other guy dribbled the ball, he carried and you didn't call it, and so they won. Right? There's a temptation in all of our hearts to live our lives demarcated by the direct opposite of these characteristics that Paul is defining for you and me that as Christians should indeed mark our lives. Brothers and sisters, if the church is indeed what Paul has already communicated it is here in, chapter, in Ephesians, if the church is indeed the fullness of God, if indeed the church is the dwelling of God in the holy temple of God, if the church is indeed the locus of the glory of God, should you and I not give our lives to ensuring that we live our lives just like Christ? In other words, friends, the extent to which this church will be effective in gospel ministry is directly tied to the extent to which we walk in a manner worthy of the calling of Christ. Never suppose that we can accomplish God's call in our lives and live contrary to these characteristics. God has indeed, Paul has given, the Spirit has inspired for you and me exactly what the means of maintaining unity is. It is selflessness. But notice what Paul says here in verses 4 through 6. He gives us the basis for our unity. Seven statements. Seven marks for the basis for the unity of the body of Christ. And here here are those seven statements. One body. One spirit, one hope. Verse 5, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. If the means of maintaining unity is selflessness, The basis for our unity is this work of God that he has defined here in these verses. Beginning in verse 4, there is one body. As you reflect on a number of statements that Paul oftentimes gives us, us, some think, for example, that potentially possible that here in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6, is perhaps an early confession of the church. And for sure, over the course of the last few weeks, uh, Christmas season, we looked at a few early hymns, if you will, that the early church would have uh, sung together. However, this expression seems to be different than the expressions that Paul normally begins with. Normally, Paul begins with a reflection on God, but notice in this reflection, Paul ends with a reflection on God. Where does Paul begin? Paul begins with the emphasis that he has been given here in chapter 4 with the body of Christ. What is the basis for the unity of the body of Christ? Paul begins by saying the body itself. 
The gathering of the people of God is and of itself a basis for this idea of unity. Paul will go on and talk about other um, relationships that we carry that are relationships of unity among great diversity. Think of marriage. Marriage is a relationship of unity, but unity among great diversity. And if you don't believe that there's diversity in marriage, come talk to me afterward. Paul gives us other examples, right? He talks about the relationship between a boss and an employee, or a slave and a master. There's unity in that the two have to be working together to accomplish a goal, but there's great diversity, right? Think of it in relationship, as he will say in chapter 6, a unity between parents and children, a unity among great diversity, yet intrinsic to these relationships, whether the church or in parenting, is this understanding of those as a basis for our unity. We have no other option, brothers and sisters, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is, to walk with one another in this selfless way as a basis of our unity is the body of Christ, the body itself. And then notice what Paul says next, the Spirit. There aren't multiple spirits of God. There is one Spirit of God. Let me back up just for a second and talk about this idea of body. This is one of the references of um, not a local church, but an expression of a universal church, the invisible church, we might say. There is one church of the living Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, all who by faith have trusted in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, have repented of their sins, are part of the church. Now, we are part of a specific local church, Woodlawn Baptist, but we would for sure say, even maybe down Jones Creek, there are other expressions of genuine, authentic brothers and sisters in Christ that are part of the body of Christ. We clearly would differ on a few issues, but we're not saying to them, you're not part of the body of Christ. There is one body of Christ, and that body of Christ is maintained through these uh, uh, other aspects that Paul will mention. The Spirit. Why can we say that there is one body of Christ when there are multiple expressions of this body of Christ? Because we're all connected through the Spirit. There is one Spirit. There aren't multiple spirits of God. Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your calling. As Paul oftentimes uses this idea of hope, this idea of hope is this certainty. We absolutely know and, and hope in this return of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is our hope. That is our focus. That is what motivates in so many ways the heart of Christianity. There is one Lord. There's one Jesus. There aren't multiple Jesuses. There aren't multiple expressions of Jesus. There is one faith. In other words, Paul is reflecting upon this, this canon, if you will, this canon of faith. We might say the, the word of God. We aren't like other, denom or other uh, religious expressions that might have multiple copies of, quote, sacred scripture. For example, our Mormon friends who are not a part of a Christian tradition, as we understand evangelical Christian tradition, have numerous texts of scriptures that they claim are indeed divine revelation. They use the Bible that you and I use. They use the Book of Mormon. They use the Pearl of Great, great Price. And for them, those are a collection of expressions of faith, but for Christianity, there aren't multiple collections of faith. There is one instruction of faith that God has so graciously given to you and me through his word. And this one faith serves as a basis for our unity. And then look what Paul says, not only one faith, but there is one baptism. Paul reflects upon this baptism as we saw, for example, 
in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 6, and he notes that baptism is the means that connects us closely to the person of Christ. It doesn't save us, but it is the means of our expression that we have indeed trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. There is one baptism, and that baptism unites us to the Godhead, and not only to the Godhead, to the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, but it also unites us with one another. And then notice Paul concludes here in verse 6, there is one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all, and he is in all. Paul has just reflected earlier in chapter 3. Look at chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 about this father. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being. Paul has already reflected upon the Father who reigns supreme over all. This Father who is authoritative, who is guiding, who is directing. And Paul says it's because of ultimately a work of God. The faith is a work of God. The church is a creation of of God. Notice the work mention of the Trinity here, the Father, the Son, and, and the Spirit. These things serve as the basis for our unity, such as if these did not exist, there would be no hope for a unity in the body of Christ. And our unity is the means, Paul argues, in this passage of Scripture, through which we communicate to the world, we are indeed like Christ. Notice what Paul does here in verses 7 through 16. So reflecting on unity in verses 1 through 6. In verses 7 through 16, Paul is going to focus now upon the church and this idea of these gifts that God has so graciously given to the church. And he reminds us that Christ has given us gifts so that we might become like Christ. Christ has given his church gifts so that you and I might become like Christ. Look what he says beginning in verse 7. But grace was given. This grace gift was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and this is a reflection upon Psalm 68, perhaps a reflection on a very specific verse in Psalm 68. Some think Psalm 68, verse 16. I don't have time to get into the differences in the uh, rendering of this psalm from the Hebrew to the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Hebrew Bible, and then into the the Greek New Testament. But there are a number of differences uh, and changing uh, phrases as Paul recounts it here, such that I think that what Paul is ultimately doing is just giving us a summation of the entirety of Psalm 68. We'll come back to that in just a few moments. So what is the summation of Psalm 68? Verse 8, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then we get this editorial from Paul, verses 9 and 10, and saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fulfill all things. And he gave. Here it is, that word again, gave. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. For what purpose? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all obtain the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head and to Christ from whom the whole body 
joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, proves the body, sorry, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Paul, in verses 7 through 16, reminds us that Christ gives the church gifts for us to become like him. And here in verses 7 through 10, Paul reminds us that Christ has given the appropriate gift or gifts to each individual believer. Sometimes we don't realize just how influenced we are by other religious expressions, other Christian traditions. For example, in the Roman Catholic Church, there is this strong dichotomy between clergy or the priest and laity. And we tend to, in the context of evangelical churches, Protestant churches, also use this uh, reflection of clergy. Oh, you're part of the clergy. I can go down to Our Lady of the Lake or to Baton Rouge General, to Oshner, and I can get me a clergy badge. See, you can't go down to Baton Rouge General or Our Lady of the Lake and get you a clergy badge. Therefore, I'm far better than any of you, unless you have a nurse badge or doctor badge or administrator badge, of course. Oftentimes, we're guilty in the context of the local church of this expression as well, whereby we separate as though there are two different groups in the church such that one group can do something for the other group that the other group can't do for themselves so that you need the clergy in case you want to receive forgiveness, just make an appointment and come confess to me and I'll help you with that. But notice in this passage of scripture, there is no reflection of this dichotomy that exists in the body of Christ. There is this one body of Christ to which we all belong, but inside this body of Christ, God has equipped us in various different ways, and my equipping and my gifting is no more or less important than your equipping or gifting. To the extent this church cannot accomplish what God has called it to do if only Laramie and Travis and I show up on Sunday mornings. And likewise, Neither can this church accomplish what she needs to without her leadership. But there's not a difference of kind or importance. Notice what this text of Scripture says beginning in verse 7. But grace was given to whom? Do you see it? Grace was given to each one of us not according to who we are, but according to Christ's wisdom, according to Christ's work, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Thus, friends, we should rejoice with one another in the way in which God has gifted us. We should not expect each of us to be just like somebody else. God has uniquely equipped and gifted us individually so that as individuals, as we gather in the context of the body of Christ, we might use those gifts as we seek to glorify God, as we seek to be the locus of the glory of God, as we seek to be the fullness of God. Such friends, this church cannot be who God has called us or tended us to be if you and I aren't equally living out the giftedness that God has given us. Who's given us gifts? Christ. How do we know it? The Bible defines it. If we were to go back and read Psalm 68, Psalm 68 is this beautiful, and, and we read it this morning, and and perhaps if you never read it or you're, unfamiliar, or you're unfamiliar with the context of that passage of Scripture, it's a text of Scripture that is reflecting upon this warrior king who has gone out, he's conquered in battle, and guess what happens when the king who wins the battle wins that battle? He's the boss. He's in charge. 
He gets to do with the spoils of that war what he wants to. And Psalm 68 is a beautiful depiction that shows God, ultimately Christ, as this warrior king who has gone out on battle. And what has this warrior king gone out on battle to do? He's gone out on battle to accomplish the salvation of people who by faith would trust in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And guess what happens? This warrior king wins. He gets the victory. And guess what happens when he gets the victory? He gets to give to you and me what he wants to give us. Why? He is the conquering king. And because Jesus has conquered, because Jesus rules and reigns, notice this reflection upon the summation of Psalm 68. When he ascended on high, to, uh, he led a host of captives. And what did he do when he led those hosts of captives to victory, friends? He gave gifts to men. Friends, we serve today in the giftedness that God has given us, not because of anything we have done. It's not because of your personality, friend, that you have a certain gift. In other words, I hate to spoil your fun, but taking a personality test won't help you in any measurable way. The joy of walking in faith with Christ is, in spite of our personalities, God gives us gifts. Jesus has gained the victory, and he and he alone has equipped and given his church gifts. Now notice what Paul does here in this editorial, in verses 9 and 10. It's going to be a continued reflection upon this idea that he gave. And let me just show it to you real quick back in uh, the text of Scripture with me. Go back to verse 7, just real quickly. But grace was given. There's a different form of this word, gave. Verse 8, he gave gifts to men. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, but what does it mean that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth? Now, I'm not intended to give you a full uh, conversation on the three different ways that you could take this passage of Scripture. Perhaps Paul is simply reflecting upon Jesus' descent to the earth in terms of his incarnation. Maybe that's it. Perhaps Paul is also reflecting here on this passage of Scripture that uh, Jesus has descended into the lower parts of the earth, and by lower parts of the earth, he means that Jesus descended into hell. Or perhaps, and what I'm inclined to believe from this passage of Scripture, Paul is reflecting upon, as he's thinking about Jesus being this conquering king, how does Jesus conquer? Part of Jesus' conquering is the fact that he was buried. Colossians, uh, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us what, what the gospel is. What is the gospel? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. I think Paul is reflecting here simply on this fact that Jesus died and he was buried in a grave. And part of that is this narrative of his being a conquering king. Verse 10, he who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fulfill all things. Paul just kind of giving a time out, if you will, an editorial on this reflection from Psalm chapter 68. Jesus has conquered through this gospel narrative, and because he's conquered through this gospel narrative, you and I have been given gifts. And notice what he says here in verses 11 and 12. Christ equips his leaders, the leaders of the church, to equip the church to accomplish her task. And he gave, there's that word gave again, verse 7, verse 8, verse 11, and he gave. That is, Christ gave to the church. What did Christ give to the church? Look at these offices, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherd teachers, or some of your Bibles translates that shepherds and teachers. 
Paul has already mentioned, even in the book of Ephesians, the prophets and the apostles. Go with me back in your passage of Scripture to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 20, Paul is reflecting upon the office of apostle and prophet as being a foundation for the church, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. What's he doing in verse, chapter 2, verse 20? G, Paul is talking about the prophets from the Old Testament and the apostles of the New Testament. And these offices being very two distinct offices that, by the way, we don't believe continue in terms of their exact expression in today's church. In other words, there's no such thing as an Old Testament prophet who is exactly hearing from God, writing down the words of God, and delivering those words of God to his church so that you and I might know how to respond in faith. That office is closed. So too is the office of the apostle, as we think about the apostles being these 12 disciples that Jesus tasked from the very beginning to spread the message of Christ around the world. But I think what Paul is doing here in Ephesians chapter 4 is different from this expression of what he's just given us in chapter 2. Chapter 2, verse 20, a reflection on Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles. We might understand the reflection here in chapter 4, verse 11, of apostle. What is an apostle? If it's not in connection with one of the original 12, we, and there are plenty of mentions in the New Testament of the word apostle, it means one who is sent out, a, a messenger. We might understand today in the context of, of local churches an apostle being one who originally takes the message of Christ to a community, to an area, and establishes a church. By the way, notice that every one of these offices, in fact, the totality of what's taking place in this passage of Scripture, is directly connected to an expression of a church. So think of in the context of this church. Woodlawn Baptist was the first Baptist church planted in East Baton Rouge Parish. That first minister who came to our community and shared the gospel and people were converted and this church started, we might say, was an apostle. One sent out, a missionary sent out to proclaim the very word of God in establishing his church. We know from the reading of 1 Corinthians that God is currently given to the expression of his church prophets. Now, we get a little nervous in the context of conservative evangelicalism with these terms of prophets. I want to make sure that you're understanding I'm not equating the New Testament gift of prophecy to the Old Testament gift of prophecy. And if we had time this morning, I'd be glad to get into it with you. See me after church today or sometime during the week, and I'll be glad to have a conversation with you. But we know that God has given the gift of, of prophet, of, of some means of encouraging people, directing people through the Word of God. He's given apostles and prophets for the express purpose of the health of the local church. What else has he given? Evangelists. <clears throat> People who have the gifting of proclaiming the word of God and seeing people come to faith in Christ. Now, all of us are called to be an evangelist. Every one of us bear a responsibility of sharing the word of God, but God has equipped and given to certain people this gift of being an evangelist for the purpose, we'll notice here in just a few moments, of equipping the church. Now, if you were reading this morning from your Greek New Testament, you would notice that in these first few, in terms of apostles, prophets, and evangelists, that Paul has, has used um, the definite article, the. So hence your Bibles read. Notice again, even in your English Bibles, and he gave the apostles and the prophets, and the evangelists. But notice what happens with these next two designations. Most of your English Bibles are only going to give you the conjunction and, and the definite article only for one of these two words. Do you see that in your English Bibles? And the shepherds, or and the pastors. 
But when he gives us uh, the word for teachers here, there is no conjunction or definite article. So some of your Bibles this morning translates this, the evangelist and the shepherds hyphen teachers, which I think is the correct understanding. He's mentioning one office here, an office that you and I, in the context of our local churches today, readily understand he's given to his church pastors. Pastors are to be people who shepherd and teach the people concerning the word of God. And why has God done this, friends? For what purpose? He gives us that purpose here in verse 12. Why has God given to this church, to his church at large, these people with these giftings to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ? God has graciously given to you and me these offices for the express purpose that you might be equipped for the work of ministry. Oftentimes we say, who is your minister? And the person you list normally as your minister might be the guy that does the primary preaching and teaching for you. Say, my minister is so-and-so. But friends, each of us, each of us, Every one of you who have trusted in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are a minister of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have been called to ministry. Every single one of us in this room today are called to faithful gospel ministry. God has saved us for a purpose. And the role that God has given to me in the context, for example, of this body, is to help equip you so that you might live out God's call for us to be ministers of the gospel of Christ. And what happens when we all live out our purpose? Look at the very end of verse 12. For building up the body of Christ. See, friends, this church will only be as strong as our weakest builder. This church will only be as strong as our weakest builder. In other words, friend, let me say it to you in the positive. We should all deeply desire the sanctification of each other. So let me ask you in this way, what are you as an individual doing to build up the body of Christ at Woodline? In what way are you working at this moment? Right now, today, to build up the body of Christ. How are you laboring to make Christ known? How are you laboring for the unity of the body of Christ? How are you serving? How are you ministering? God has given to us gifts for a purpose. And notice what he does in verses 13 and 14. He gives us two results. The first in a positive, the second in the negative. The first result, until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Is there anyone in the sanctuary today that would like to stand up and say, Pastor, I'm there. I've reached it. I've got all I need. But friends, you know what happens in the reverse? Let me make a pitch to you. But one of the reasons why the gathering of the body of Christ at this moment is so vitally important for your heart, for your life, and for your soul, and not just for you, for those seated around you. It is impossible for you and me to be 
who God has created us and neglect or half-heartedly participate in the body of Christ. That is not God's design for you or for me. God's design for you and for me is to participate so passionately and fully that we join in this beautiful depiction that you understand and I understand that my participation matters so intimately and deeply that I play a role in the vital health of my local church. I play a role in the vital strength of my local church. This is the result of what happens, brothers and sisters, when we rightly participate in the body of Christ. Do you desire this? Is this the Jesus you want to know? I can't think of a more beautiful depiction until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature adulthood and spirituality, manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You can't become more like Christ by participating less in the body of Christ. You and I only become more like Christ as we participate fully in the body of Christ. Now notice what he says in the negative. What's the negative result? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness, and deceitful schemes. See, friends, there is a deep danger to my heart and to your heart. There is a deep danger to your mind and to my mind. There is a deep danger to your soul and to my soul to not rightly participate in the body of Christ. What is that danger? You're so easily led astray, friends. You so easily follow these other doctrines that if not careful, lead your soul to an eternity separated from God, to division, to chaos. And might I say as we reflect on this negative result, Paul is also saying to us, it matters deeply what type of church I connect my heart and life to. We should connect our lives to churches who are indeed teaching and preaching the word of God. Why it serves as a guard, friends. The word of God serves as that guard, brother. Preaching of God's word, the singing of God's word, the praying of God's word serves as that guardrail in our hearts and lives that keeps us from this negative result listed here in verse 14. So that these things can't be said about us. So that we can't be, as James says, that double-minded man or person. So that we are grounded in the truths of God's word. And ultimately look at verses 15 and 16. Christ is equipping his church and enabling his church to grow, to be more like Christ, to be love. Look what he says. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way in him who is the head and to Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the whole body grow. Notice the very end of verse 16. So that it builds itself up in what? Love. Boy, Jesus himself and the writers of the New Testament have a lot to say about this designation of love, do they not? This is a new commandment that God has given to us. That we love one 
another. The height of what it means to be like Christ in the context of the body of Christ is our love for one another. Friends, if we could have a love meter this morning and we could hand you that love meter and by holding that love meter it would read for us just how loving and kind and gracious you are in terms of your thoughts and in terms of your actions, what might your love meter read this morning? Not just your love meter, friends. What about the love meter for the entire church? I want to encourage you this morning by saying to you, not because I serve as one of the pastors at this church, but in some ways because I do, but in so many other ways because I've experienced it. You are one of the most gracious, kind, loving bodies of Christ with whom I've had the pleasure of being connected. And friends, it's also one of the marks that we so regularly, regularly, I can't say that word, hear from everybody that visits this church. But while that's a good thing, we also live our lives with a reminder that that love and that unity is only held together by our faithfulness to follow Christ. And that thread that holds this love together for you and me can so easily be severed. And what we think about one another, the way we communicate to one another, or the way we do not communicate to one another. So you say, Pastor, what does this mean for us? Church family, I can't think of a better passage of Scripture that so captures what we as your pastors desire for the life of this church than Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. I can't think of a more beautiful depiction of what Christ has intended for you and for me than Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. So to help us accomplish this growth in love and maturity, to help us accomplish this growth in unity over the course of the next year, we're going to spend uh, time over this year focused on six aspects of the local church. And as we focus on these six aspects of the local church, it's our desire, for example, to help equip you. One of the marks of this church that has been true for the life of this church for many years is you have had this missionary evangelist zeal. You have been so well equipped in sharing the gospel, and yet that equipping must continue. So starting in two weeks, we're going to provide four weeks of equipping for you that Pastor Travis is going to lead in apologetics and, and evangelism to help encourage this church family to regularly live out her life on mission with God. And I can't think of a better time of the year than to accomplish that. Why? I don't know if you had an opportunity of being on this campus yesterday. I've been here for 10 upward seasons. I have never seen the amount of people on this campus that we had yesterday. I think it was by far the largest crowds I have seen in 10 years of upward basketball at Woodlawn Baptist. And guess what all of those people represent? A soul, a person who needs to hear the gospel. And guess what, friends? We don't have to go out and find them. They've come to our campus. So what better way than you being equipped? Will you give up an hour on a Saturday morning? I'm not asking you to come coach. 
Will you give up an hour on a Sunday morning and just come be on the campus and sit in the stands and start engaging people or start building relationships with people? We want to equip you to live out your life on mission with God by faithfully proclaiming the gospel of Christ. We want to equip you to better think about church membership. So later in this fall, we're going to spend uh, some time together in the Word reflecting upon church membership. Why is church membership important? As I noted from the very beginning in this quote from, from Mark Dever, wrong ecclesial teaching and practices obscure the gospel. See, friends, for us to wrongly participate in membership obscures the clarity of the gospel. We want to help Woodlawn Baptist Church. We want to equip you to deepen your understanding of church membership and why it matters. We want to spend some time reflecting on one of the aspects of the Word of God of biblical worship. What is worship? Why does worship matter? So Pastor Laramie is going to lead us in a series of four weeks on Sunday afternoons in a reflection on the importance of biblical worship. And as we reflect together on these six aspects over this coming year, our prayer as your pastors is that the truth of this text of Scripture might increase in our hearts and our lives and that we at Woodlawn Baptist Church might indeed reflect the beauty of the glory of God and Christ through our participation in the body of Christ at Woodlawn. Will you join us on this journey? Will you increase your love for the body of Christ at Woodlawn? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the beauty of this truth that has been revealed, that you, Jesus, have established your church. You've called your church to live in unity. It's a reflection of the glory of God, and you've so graciously equipped us so that by equipping us, Lord, we might be who you've called us to be. And so as we spend a few moments this morning reflecting upon your word, Lord, Increase our affections for your church and for Christ, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.